Chapter Two of the Precipice by Ivan Goncharov, translated by M. Bryant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Raisky entered the university and spent the summer vacation with his aunt Tatiana Markovna Berishkov. His aunt lived in a family estate which Boris had inherited from his mother, a piece of land on the Volga, close by a little town with fifty souls and two residences, one built of stone and now neglected, the other a wooden building built by Boris's father. In this newer house Tatiana Markovna lived with two orphan girls of six and five years old, respectively, who had been left in her care by a niece whom she had loved as a daughter. Tatiana Markovna had an estate and a village of her own, but after the death of Raisky's parents, she had established herself on their little estate, which she ruled like a miniature kingdom, wisely, economically, carefully, and despotically. She never permitted Boris's guardian to interfere in her business, took no heed of documents, papers, or deeds, but carried on the affairs of the estate according to the practice of its former owners. She told Boris's guardian that all the documents, papers, and deeds were inscribed in her memory, and that she would render account to Boris when he came of age. Until that day came, she, according to the verbal instructions of his parents, was mistress of the estate. Boris's guardian was content. It was an excellent estate, and could not be better administered than by the old lady. What a paradise Raisky evolved for himself in this corner of the earth, from which he had been taken away in his childhood, and where he had spent many a summer visit in his school days. What views in the neighborhood! Every window in the house framed a lovely landscape. From one side could be seen the Volga, with its steep banks, from the others wide meadows and gorges, and the whole seemed to melt into the distant blue hills. From the third side could be seen fields, villages, and part of the town. The air was cool and invigorating and as refreshing as a bathe on a summer day. In the immediate neighborhood of the two houses, the great park, with its dark alleys, arbors, and seats, was kept in good order but beyond these limits it was left wild. There were broad stretching elms, cherry and apple trees, service trees, and there were lime trees intended to form an avenue, which lost itself in a wood in the friendly neighborhood of pines and birches. Suddenly the hole ended in a precipice, thickly overgrown with bushes, which overhung a plain about one and a half versts in breadth along the banks of the Volga. Nearer the wooden house lay the vegetable garden, and just in front of its windows lay the flower garden. Tatiana Markovna liked to have a space clear of trees in front of the house, so that the place was flooded with sunshine and the scent of flowers. From the other side of the house one could watch all that was going on in the courtyard and could see the servants' quarters, the kitchens, the hayricks, and the stable. In the depth of the courtyard stood the old house, gloomy, always in shadow, 
stained with age with here and there a cracked window-pane with heavy doors fastened by heavy bolts and the path leading up to it overgrown with grass but on the new house the sun streamed from morning to night the flower garden full of roses and dahlias surrounded it like a garland and the gay flowers seemed to be trying to force their way in through the windows swallows nesting under the eaves flew hither and thither in the garden and the trees there were sedge sparrows siskins and goldfinches and when darkness fell the nightingale began to sing around the flowers there were swarms of bees bumblebees dragonflies and glittering butterflies and in the corners cats and kittens stretched themselves comfortably in the sunshine in the house itself peace and joy reigned the rooms were small but cosy antique pieces of furniture had been brought over from the great house as had the portraits of raisky's parents and grandparents the floors were painted waxed and polished the stoves were adorned with old-fashioned tiles also brought over from the other house the cupboards were full of plate and silver there were old dresden cups and figures chinese ornaments teapots sugar basins heavy old spoons round stools bound with brass and inlaid tables stood in pleasant corners in tatiana markovna's sitting-room stood an old-fashioned carved bureau with a mirror urns lyres and genii but she had hung up the mirror because she said it was a hindrance to writing when you stared at your own stupid face the room also contained a round table where she lunched and drank her tea and coffee and a rather hard leather-covered armchair with a high back grandmother footnote tatiana markovna was addressed by her grandnieces and her grandnephew as grandmother and footnote was old-fashioned she did not approve of lounging but held herself upright and was simple and reserved in her manners how beautiful boris thought her and indeed she was beautiful tall neither stout nor thin a vivacious old lady not indeed an old lady but a woman of fifty with quick black eyes and so kind and gracious a smile that even when she was angry and the stormlight flickered in her eyes the blue sky could be observed behind the clouds she had a slight moustache and on her left cheek near the chin a birthmark with a little bunch of hairs details of which gave her face a remarkable expression of kindness she cut her grey hair short and went about in house yard garden with her head uncovered but on feast days or when guests were expected she put on a cap the cap could not be kept in its place and did not suit her at all so that after about five minutes she would with apologies remove the tiresome headdress in the mornings she wore a white white blouse with a girdle and big pockets in the afternoon she put on a brown dress and on feast days a heavy rustling silk dress that gleamed like silver and over it a valuable shawl 
which only Vasilisa, her housekeeper, was allowed to take out of the press. Uncle Ivan Kuzmich brought it from the east, she used to boast. It cost three hundred gold rubles, and now no money would buy it. At her girdle hung a bunch of keys, so that grandmother could be heard from afar like a rattlesnake when she crossed the yard or the garden. At the sound the coachmen hid their pipes in their boots, because the mistress feared nothing so much as fire, and for that reason counted smoking as the greatest of crimes. The cooks seized the knife, the spoon, or the broom. Kiryusha, who had been joking with Matryona, hurried to the door, while Matryona hurried to the buyer. If the approaching clatter gave warning that the mistress was returning to the house, Mashutka quickly took off her dirty apron and wiped her hands on a towel or a bit of rag, as the case might be. Spitting on her hands, she smoothed down her dry, rebellious hair and covered the round table with the finest of clean tablecloths. Vasilisa, silent, serious, of the same age as her mistress, buxom but faded with much confinement indoors, would bring in the silver service with the steaming coffee. Mashutka effaced herself as far as possible in a corner. The mistress insisted on cleanliness in her servants, but Mashutka had no gift for keeping herself spotless. When her hands were clean, she could do nothing, but felt as if everything would slip through her fingers. If she was told to do her hair on Sunday, to wash and to put on tidy clothes, she felt the whole day as if she had been sewn into a sack. She only seemed to be happy when, smeared and wet with washing the boards, the windows, the silver or the doors, she had become almost unrecognizable and had, if she wanted to rub her nose or her eyebrows, to use her elbow. Vasilisa, on the contrary, respected herself and was the only tidy woman among all the servants. She had been in the service of her mistress since her earliest days as her personal maid, had never been separated from her, knew every detail of her life, and now lived with her as housekeeper and confidential servant. The two women communicated with one another in monosyllables. Tatiana Markovna hardly needed to give instructions to Vasilisa, who knew herself what had to be done. If something unusual was required, her mistress did not give orders, but suggested that this or that should be done. Vasilisa was the only one of her subjects whom Tatiana Markovna addressed by her full name. If she did address them by their baptismal names, they were names that could not be compressed nor clipped, as for example Ferrapont or Pantelemon. The village elder she did indeed address as Stepan Vasilich, but the others were to her Matryoshka, Mashutka, Yegorka, and so on. The unlucky individual whom she addressed with his Christian name and patronymic knew that a storm was impending. Here, Yegor Prokhorich, where were you all day yesterday? Or, Simeon Vasilich, you smoked a pipe yesterday in the hayrick. Take care. 
she would get up in the middle of the night to convince herself that a spark from a pipe had not set fire to anything or that there was not someone walking about the yard or the coach-house with a lantern under no consideration could the gulf between the people and the family be bridged she was moderately strict and moderately considerate kindly but always within the limits of her ideas of government if irina matryona or another of the maids gave birth to a child she listened to the report of the event with an air of injured dignity but gave vasilisa to understand that the necessaries should be provided and would add only don't let me see the good for nothing after matryona or irina had recovered she would keep out of her mistress's sight for a month or so then it was as if nothing had happened and the child was put out in the village if any of her people fell sick tatiana got up in the night sent him spirits and embrocation but next day she would send him either to the infirmary or oftener to the wise woman but she did not send for a doctor but if one of her own relatives her grandchildren showed a bad tongue or a swollen face kirusha of las must immediately ride post haste to the town for the doctor the wise woman was a woman in the suburbs who treated the people with simple remedies and rapidly relieved them of their maladies it did indeed happen that many a man remained crippled for life after her treatment one lost his voice and could only crow another lost an eye or a piece of his jawbone but the pain was gone and he went back to work that seemed satisfactory to the patient as well as the proprietor of the estate and as the wise woman only concerned herself with humble people with serfs and the poorer classes the medical profession did not interfere with her tatiana markovna fed her servants decently with cabbage soup and groats on feast days with rye and mutton at christmas geese and pigs were roasted she allowed nothing out of the common on the servants table or in their dress but she gave the surplus from her own table now to one woman now to another vasilisa drank tea immediately after her mistress after her came the maids in the house and last old yakob on feast days on account of hardness of their work a glass of brandy was handed to the coachman the manservants and the starosta as soon as the tea was cleared away in the morning a stout chubby-faced woman pushed her way into the room always smiling she was made to the grandchildren verochka and marfinka close at her heels the twelve-year-old assistant and together they brought the children to breakfast never knowing which of the two to kiss first tatiana markovna would begin well my birdies how are you verochka darling you have brushed your hair and me granny me marfinka would cry why are marfinka's eyes red has she been crying tatiana markovna inquired anxiously of the maid the sun has dazzled her are her curtains well drawn you careless girl i must see in the maid's room sat three or four young girls 
who sat all day long sewing or making bobbin lace, without once stretching their limbs all day because the mistress did not like to see idle hands. In the anteroom there sat idly the melancholy Jacob, Yegorka, who was sixteen and always laughing, with two or three lackeys. Jacob did nothing but wait at table, where he idly flicked away the flies and as idly changed the plates. He was almost too idle to speak, and when the visitors addressed him he answered in a tone indicating excessive boredom or a guilty conscience. Because he was quiet, never seriously drunk, and did not smoke, his master had made him butler. He was also very zealous at church. End of chapter 2